Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a King Killer Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, Season 2, Episode 35, Into the Wilds, where we will be looking at Chapters 74 through 76 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of Off the Beaten Path. As always, before we begin, let's get the stuff that might or might not be legal stuff out of the way. Each week we'll be examining a section of The Wise Man's Fear through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from text to apply to our real lives. We'll also take some time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text with an Aristotelian from Nemos of the week. After that, we will expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact and share some recommended things. Finally, we'll wrap things up with some words from the book and some words from our own lives. Before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Dot Books. Second, we're halfway through The Wise Man's Fear. Spoilers. All I gotta say. Also a word to our community, please be kind to yourselves, one another, and the creators of the worlds that we love exploring. Do not kick people in the slushy. All right. Thank you for those disclaimers. With that out of the way, it's time for the 45 second recap. It's your turn this week. And unless you can avoid going over the time limit, there's going to be raspberries. I'm pretty sure I can avoid going over the time limit. You say that, but I'm looking forward to some raspberries. Well, you can eat them whenever you want. All right, I've got the timer up. So in three, two, one, go. Apparently the plot was becoming stale. So Rothfuss decided to throw a spanner in the works. And now that the mayor has secured his relationship with his lady love, it is time to send Quoth on a quest, which Quoth assumes is more about getting him out of the mayor's hair than anything else. Enter new characters and a transition to a new setting. Quoth is now leading a band of mercenaries, Tempe, Didan, Hespa, and Martin, all of whom are older and more experienced than him. We shall see how this all plays out in the coming months. All right. You got in at 32.45 seconds. So, sadly, no raspberries for you. Yay! I know how much you were looking forward to that. No! <laughs> So, yeah, like you say, we're kind of at the halfway mark, and this is definitely a big changing of gears. I think this is something that this particular book does more than Name of the Wind did. You mean take a rather ham-fisted left turn? I'm not saying all of the gear changes are smooth, but I would say that it is more willing to put Quoth into different challenging situations outside of his normal comfort zone. You mean... Not at the university? So if we look at the name of the wind, what we really see is Quoth getting comfortable and then getting ousted from first his caravan, then from, and I say comfort very loosely here, Tarbian. So with that comfort in the way that the known is comforting and the unknown is scary? Yeah, he gets into a groove in each one of these places, first with his caravan, then at Tarbian, and then at the university finally. And then it all circles back to the university after a brief stopover in Traven. Wise Man's Fear starts with a very long slog at the university and the environs around. Then he gets moved out to Severin, and 
he gets into a bit of a groove here. He's got a routine. He's got people he knows. He's got people he likes. He knows how things are going. And then now we're actually seeing not just a major change of setting, but a change of role for Kvothe. One thing I'd like to say is that while it is abrupt, it's at least getting the plot moving again, which I think is a criticism that was maybe or maybe not rightfully thrown at George R. R. Martin for how he was handling Danny in the last book. Like it's something that even George R. R. Martin himself agonized over. He referred to the Miranese knot oftentimes in his discussions on his blog. This was the biggest thing that kept him from finishing Dance with Dragons because he himself recognized the rut, but he couldn't find an easy way to get himself out of it. Right. Where I think either Patrick Rothfuss or his editor is like, okay, enough of that. Yeah. It's definitely a big shift. And I think part of it is that Rothfuss is someone who likes to get into routines. And this is Quoth too. Quoth is constantly looking for routines because they give him a sense of stability in an unstable life. And if you think about it, his routines really are like a few months, maybe a year, because he's still so young. He's only been out of Tarbian for a few years at most. He's done a lot over his relatively short lifespan, but there is still that need for routine. So here he's actually being thrust out into the woods with a relatively nebulous goal and one that has nothing to do with the Chandrian. One thing I would like to say, though, is that since we are looking at story through character, I want to draw back to the very beginning of our section here. There is a whole host of rumors, stories written down that he's going through while drunk, which is what I'm going to say is probably why he didn't interrogate them very well. Because there's a story about the person that is almost certainly his mother. Yep, I caught that too. The other thing I caught was the bit about Braden, specifically how he supposedly leads pagan revelries in his estate. Please note where Braden's estates are. They're in the north. And where will the bandits be? in the north. And who will be leading those bandits? Cinder, for reasons that we really don't understand. We did say spoilers. Anyway, I think it's interesting that later on he acknowledges that the drunken state that he was in plays a part in how absolutely cluelessly he handled just all of a sudden being told that he's gonna go lead a group of mercenaries. But he doesn't take the time to interrogate those stories that he read. Yeah, they're almost little bits of things that probably adult Kvothe only remembers hazily because they were just what he was doing to kill time. Keep in mind, not only is he drunk, he's in a pretty foul mood after his fight with Denna. He's reading these spiteful stories as kind of a catharsis. Yeah. He doesn't even know if he really even believes any of them. All he knows is these are just basically tabloid gossip. And it's easier to 
kind of laugh at the plights of the so-called better half rather than actually deal with his own issues. Of course, all of the drinking has made him perhaps a little more bold in his statements and he makes a lot of claims about, oh yeah, I would totally just do X, Y, and Z to solve Mayor Alvaron's various problems. Mayor Alvaron's problems currently being bandits are stealing tax money along the King's Road. And what I find interesting is that this very, very rich political figure is stating, oh, no, of course the king is going to get his money. I just have to send the tax collectors out again instead of, oh, no, the king is going to get his money. It's just going to come out of my coffers. It's something of the problems of the feudal state. Mayor Alvaron obviously never really interrogates his own privilege. He never really thinks about just what it all means to have all the wealth that he does. I mean, we know that he has staggering amounts of wealth. And Kvothe, for his part, doesn't actually pay much mind to it either. We can excuse a little of that as he's drunk, but I think that if sober, he might have a little bit more quibble with sending tax collectors out to collect the same money again from people who don't have it to give to people who do. There's a reason why people always go after like the bank robbery as a thing, because it's kind of a victimless crime. The money's insured and nobody actually loses anything out of it. Theoretically. Theoretically. In this case, though, yeah, it ends up just compounding things because the nobles don't just pay for it out of their own coffers. They get more from the people. Part of it is, I suspect that they spend so much on all of the stuff. Like, if you were to look at how much Mayor Alvaron actually has in liquid assets, probably isn't all that much. And it certainly wouldn't be enough to routinely just pay out of his own coffers whatever the king is demanding as a tithe. He would go broke pretty quickly if he spent the way he does on himself and then was also spending out of that to do the basic maintenance and upkeep of the kingdom. My point isn't necessarily that the taxes shouldn't be collected. My point is it's not on the people if the taxes are stolen. At that point, they've already been collected. They are now the Mayor Alvarons. The Mayor Alvaron was stolen from, not the people. So therefore, if the Mayor Alvaron needs to pay the king more, it should still come out of his own coffers and he should either A, take the loss, or B, go after the people who did steal his money. What he seems to be doing is recollecting from the people who don't have it, paying the king regardless, and sending people to go get his money back. Triple dipping a little bit. And you kind of got to figure that at the same time throughout all of this, if the mayor is having difficulty getting his tax collectors through the eld and collecting revenue as they're supposed to do, and that revenue is supposed to go to the king, shouldn't the king also be providing maybe some federal level help and actually 
you know, making sure that these get properly protected and or recovering, since it's also effectively the king's wealth. I'm not sure that the mayor, Alvaron, is sharing the fact that his tax collectors are getting ravaged with the king. Quite probably not. There's some politicking involved. There's some trust, some politicking. There's some saving face. But overall, why would you send someone who is 16, 17 years old, even if he does no magic, which, as we'll see, doesn't actually earn him any favors because it just fuels superstition. Why send a kid to lead a group of adults to go get your money back? And it takes Quoth sobering up and dealing with said adults for a little while before he goes, oh, oh, I'm an idiot. Yeah, he's on a snipe hunt. Pretty much. That's what I was thinking. And that's actually what he starts to think, too, because he knows that he shouldn't be leading this group. He's fully aware. He even brings it up to Martin, who is the person that he has identified should be the leader. And Martin gives back information that I think is interesting and wise. There is a difference between being capable of doing something and being confident in doing something and wanting to do it. Yeah, I actually noted that down in our talk about the next chapter. So, <laughs> but yeah, Quoth got voluntold, in other words. Yes, he got voluntold while he was drunk and really couldn't consent. Well, and if we we're looking at just the power dynamics in play, even if Quoth was sober, there really isn't a good way for him to decline this request. It's not a request. Yeah, it's a let's you and him fight. <laughs> so that brings us to chapter 75, The Players, where Quoth meets his new traveling companions. One quick note. Quoth, once again, regales us with his thieving prowess in that he goes and steals his loot from the person who fixed it and claims that it's a victimless crime, which I'm sure that drunk Gash. Quoth made a mess of something and probably cost the luthier some money in repairs. Oh, yeah. The guy's probably going to have to replace the locks. Even if they're not, quote, broken, he knows that someone knows how to break into these. He probably wants to get new ones. And not only that, as far as the luthier knows, this was some random thief who broke in. And now he's going to have to pay back what the cost of the loot was to his customer, Quoth. Hopefully, Quoth won't be enough of a jerk to try to weasel more money out of the luthier. Yeah, one would hope. One would hope. Now we shall go on to the meeting of his new charges. So we've got Tempe, who's our red-clad Adem mercenary, who is mostly silent. We've got Daydan, who is the common caravan guard, who's kind of rough and ready, boisterous and crass, but generally outgoing and friendly and quick-witted when it suits him. Then we have Hespa, who is a token female character. Yeah, she's similarly equipped and built like Daydan, but she's far more reserved and hardened. She seems like the token serious one. There's 
I have problems with the way that she is described. No one else was listed as the male version of anything or the male whatever the heck. Like, mm -mm. no, we don't need to talk like Ferengi, the female. <laughs> like, that doesn't need to be a noun. That should be a descriptor and ugh. If it needs to even be brought up, you can just use her pronouns, and I'm pretty sure we all figured it out. Yeah, she's cast as sort of the killjoy, which is also a unfortunate trope. Unfortunately sexist trope. Yeah. And then we've got Martin, who is a tracker and huntsman and the oldest of the group and kind of the archer expert type. He's the person who should be leading the group. Because he also has the move silently spell. Yeah. So one of the things, like you mentioned earlier, Kvothe quickly says, yeah, this guy should probably be leading this group. He knows more about what's going on. He knows the skills. He knows the terrain. Um, why aren't you leading? And then Martin just says, um, being able and being willing are two very different things. He doesn't want the responsibility. He doesn't want the headaches, honestly, <laughs> that come with leadership. Also, it's very likely that the mayor has assigned Kvothe as being the leader. And Martin is smart enough to not argue. I also noticed here that Martin does actually do a lot of leadership, even if it's not of the formal variety. You know, he's the one who's teaching everyone how to do all these various skills and techniques and tactics for how to hide in the woods, how to follow a trail, etc. He's mediating disputes between Daydan and Hespa and everyone else. He's doing all of these leadership soft skills that have nothing to do with title. They have more to do with how you interact with people. And... I also think that there's just something there that I think you should keep an eye on. And it's something that we'll talk about particularly in the next chapter after. But I want to call that out, that leadership is actually something that Kvothe really knows nothing about. And he's getting an object lesson in what happens when you do it wrong. One thing also I'd like to mention is that Tempe, it's called out that he's fidgety, that he doesn't do eye contact. We know that that's an ADEM thing that gets explained at the end of the book or closer to the end of the book. There is still quite a lot of book left. I don't have a good judge of where in the next 500 pages that is, but it's somewhere. But tell me if you agree with me on this. Tempe is being described in a way that a lot of autistic people would be. Fidgety, stimming, not making eye contact, not talking very much. What I saw was when Quoth tries to draw Tempe into conversation, he takes for granted that conversational norms are going to be the same, whether you're from a tour or the Commonwealth or Ventus or the Stormwall. He thinks that, oh, if I talk to you, you should respond to me just the same. However, the conversational norms and the ways that people speak within ADEM culture are vastly different 
from what Kvothe is used to. And so I think we see also a little bit of cultural naivete on Kvothe's part. Even though he thinks of himself as being this very cosmopolitan traveler who's been everywhere and you know seen everything, met everyone, and those that he hasn't met, he's heard stories about and that's been good enough. That is a good point. Hearing somebody else's third-hand anecdotes does not make you an expert in a culture. Right. And Kvothe is running up against the limits of this. And I think in today's information economy, it can be very difficult to remember that there's a lot of the world that most of us haven't experienced. We read so much on Twitter and Facebook and Reddit and all of the vast array of accounts that are available for us to look at. We hear stories, we can read stories, we can see video content about people all over the world. And it can be really easy to think that that is the same as having knowledge about it. And I say this as someone who admittedly falls into this trap myself. So I don't want you to think that I am trying to judge anyone here any more harshly than I judge myself on this. Like, for instance, there are cultural norms in countries that have arranged marriages and people outside of those countries, especially people in the United States, can have very, 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 very strong opinions about that practice without taking into consideration the cultural norms surrounding it. And instead of approaching someone who is concerned about their future in a society that does practice this, they're more, that system needs to be abolished, rah, 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 no empathy for you. And it may very well be that there are major systemic problems, but People like me are hardly the ones to actually make that diagnosis in a meaningful fashion. And then, again, it's one thing to diagnose a problem. It is a completely different thing to actually propose a solution. A workable solution. You can propose as many solutions as you want. Let's put it this way. Maybe implement a solution. You could even propose a workable one, but implementing it is a very different proposition. And it is naive to believe that you have fixed the problem by suggesting that an entire system, an entire cultural norm, just stops happening. Just don't. Just don't. There's a lot to unpack in that. But yeah, I think Tempe is a very fascinating character, partly because he's a character whose culture doesn't have any obvious cultural touchstones with other cultures that exist on our world. I'm not sure that that's completely true, but what I'd say is that maybe those cultural norms for the ADEM don't mesh or match cultural norms in other parts of Temerant. That's fair. Other things that we get in here is Kvothe is definitely feeling a lot of insecurity. You know, he feels less well-equipped. Well, that's because he was drunk and in a rush and didn't have time to get basic necessities that wouldn't have cost him any money or cost his group any money if he had 
not been drunk off of his ash. When asked what he would need for a month out in the woods. There is that. I'm also thinking just general life skills, right? I mean, yeah, Kvothe has lived a lot of life in his 16 years. But at the same time, you know, he hasn't really done a lot of hand-to-hand -hand combat. He has not done a whole lot of actual wilderness tracking and survival since he left the wilderness to move to Tarbian. And his studying under someone who was a tracker or whatever the guy was happened for like a few months when he was 11. It's been some time and it's not stuff that he's exactly been practicing because all of this is practiced skill. He didn't put in all of the hours and he has not been doing it since. And I think also he's acutely aware that right now he is dressed like a noble. Like a dandy. Yeah. And he knows that none of the others know him from Adam or Adam. But I'm bump. Thank you for finding that funny. Did I? Well, you're smiling, so that's close enough. <laughs> He just feels really ill-equipped across the board. And I think also he's not really sure what leadership actually is. Like he knows that he's got the little paper that says, yep, I'm the leader. This actually reminds me a little bit of something. A number of years ago when we were volunteering at Emerald City Comic Con to help with a booth for a, for all intents and purposes, game vendor, board games and such, the person whose booth it was, whose company it was, actually hired me the second year around to do a lot of the kind of logistic work and scheduling work. And she paid me for work that I was doing for the booth. Yeah, I'd already worked a year for her. And I knew a lot about what we were doing. But there were people there that had worked it longer than me. And despite the fact that they were my friends, they all did the, oh my goodness, you're so cute. Whenever I'd try to assert some kind of leadership or some kind of ownership over any of the procedural stuff to do with scheduling their lunches or whatnot, or which booth they would be at, because we had two that year. And they're like, we'll take care of this. We've been doing it for like, five years. And I was just like, fine, whatever. Y'all are still volunteers and I'm still getting paid. <laughs> okay. But I'm still really good friends with at least one of them. And at a certain point, sure, you don't argue with the title, but you also defer to the people who know what they're doing. Part of it is also just Kvothe is in a position here where now he's having to actually take responsibility for being the smart one. Like he doesn't get to just idly propose solutions or whatever. Now he is responsible for the delivery of them. He knows that if he screws this up, he's the one who's gonna be answering for it. Then we get to the tinker and they have this fun little interaction where they go back and forth over various supplies that Quoth is realizing, yeah, he's gonna need. He doesn't even have salt. He doesn't have a tinderbox. He has a very fine cloak made of very fine fabric 
that will be useless in the rain. He doesn't even have a weapon, and he's going out into the woods to hunt bandits. That too. Much less anything to cut his vegetables with. Right. I mean, we can't all be like one of my friends from when I was in school who just ate everything with his hands, including salad. Can't all be him. He also takes the opportunity to write a letter to Denna explaining his disappearance. I have a thing about this. Denna never, ever, 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 ever gives any explanation ever when she just up and disappears. Ever. And Quoth somehow feels obligated to let her know that he's been conscripted to just go out and hunt bandits and going to send a tinker with the letter to where she was yesterday. She probably isn't there. But Quoth, A, doesn't do this out of spite saying like, well, she never does it for me, but I think that I should do it for her because I know how worried I get whenever she's just gone. But B, also, it just doesn't occur to him to be a jerk about any of it. He's just like, I wish I had a little more time to craft my letter and be a little more subtle in my prose because I value that and she and I banter like this and this is something that would be normal. But then he's also forgotten another crucial thing. Every time he's ever written her a letter, she never gets it because she's never there. Well, and she's tried to write to him multiple times and has similarly poor luck. How many times have we had issues with various runners being sent to him that don't arrive until like too late? Yeah, that is also true. The mail system in Temerant just isn't very efficient. No, we've made mention of that before. I've also got to say that sending this letter may have been a tactical blunder on Quoth's part. Like, his mission is ostensibly meant to be secret, but by writing it down and handing it to someone saying, give it to someone of a vague general description. It's a girl, she's pretty and dark-haired, and she's at this inn. Great, you've really done the world a favor here. You've given us a real... We know it's going to reach its intended target. We know no one's going to read it, right? <laughs> It's the sort of thing that would be very easy to fall into the wrong hands, is what I'm saying. So, good job, Quoth. The other thing that's really interesting to me here is he kind of learns the hard way about the whole idea about perfect being the enemy of the good. He wants to have a knife, right? Obviously, he's going to need one. It's a useful tool to have in the woods, both for cutting branches and cutting food, and then also to use as a makeshift weapon. He has nothing of the sort. And the Tinker offers him a blade of Ramston steel, which is known for being very hard and sharp and pretty awesome, but it's also brittle. And Quoth calls this out, and the Tinker says, yeah, that's true, but this is also the only one I've got, so you want it or not? And the phrase I see on here is, this is the best knife you'll ever own until it breaks. And then the Tinker says, which is also true of just about any other knife. Which is just a further proof of the old adage that the best tool for a job is the one that you actually have with you, no matter how imperfect it may be. And I think that it's a useful thing to keep in mind, just in general. Like You don't have to have the perfect tool for everything. If you have a decent enough one, use that. One thing that I would draw this back to is we watched a video from Adam Savage recently on Tested, which we have recommended before, where 
he answers a question from somebody who is a new maker that is asking, would you rather get a refurbished tool or a brand new tool? And his answer was, get the best tool that you can afford for the job if it's something that you need. If you don't know if you need it, get the cheapest one. And if you don't know how serious your need is going to be, but you do think you're going to need one, don't get super picky if they don't have the best one. Get the one that's available. Yes. <laughs> like, that's the other thing. If we look at Quoth's before state, before he meets the Tinker, and then his after state, before he met the Tinker, he did not have a knife, which meant that regardless of the knife's quality, he had none. He could not fend himself off from an attacker. He could not cut up his food. He could not cut any branches. He could not use it to dig for veggies. Couldn't shave. He didn't have anything to cut with. Now, after meeting the Tinker, he has a knife. But yeah, perfect is the enemy of the good. The one thing I would like to point out is that instead of handing over about a third of the money that he received from the mayor, he winds up trading his very fine cloak for a not-so-fine cloak that will actually serve him better, a sewing kit to repair said cloak, and probably the rest of his clothes, which are probably going to disintegrate, let's be clear here, the fine quality of his dandy outfits is not going to withstand woods. Salt, tinderbox, paper, and delivery of a letter. I think there were a few other things. Oh, the knife, right? All of that, and now the tinker has the very fine cloak. So while he's actually quite sad to be going without his cloak, yet another wonderfully nice awesome cloak with so many pockets that he's customized and he's very sad he also gets the tinker a little bit with i'll give you a piece of silver a piece of copper whatever the other one is iron yeah and i think by his descriptor of tinkers they tend to be the jolly type who get a kick out of the stories about tinkers and the traditional little bits. And if you're kind and fun and know all of these little esoteric things about tinkers, you're going to get a better deal. Yeah, it pays to be folkloric with them, I think. Yes. Yeah, I, I thought the tinker was a little fun. Same. So now we move on to chapter 76, Tinder. So here we get a couple interesting things about Quoth's attempts to gel with the rest of the group. Unsuccessfully. So first we get him trying to draw Tempe into a conversation, not really realizing those cultural differences. It's not of the Lithani. We'll hear that phrase a lot. Oh boy, will we hear that phrase a lot. If you listen to the audiobooks, you can probably hear it in your head over and over and over as we go along. So then we get an interaction with Daydan in particular that I think is useful in illustrating some of the challenges Quoth is facing from a leadership perspective. So Quoth's trying to build a fire. 
He's got his sticks and wood together and he hasn't lit it just yet, but Daydan thinks he's done it wrong. And they get into it a little bit. And the thing that strikes me here is never once does Kvothe ask Daydan how he should be doing it. Kvothe is more interested in being right than being a leader or being part of the group. One of the things that I've heard said of leaders is the really good ones care more about being interested than being interesting. They care more about learning from the people that they're leading than they do about the people that they're leading, respecting them or caring for them. Quoth really desperately feels like he needs to impress the rest of the group. Like that's the only way that he'll be able to win their respect. And he doesn't express a whole lot of curiosity towards them. Like he basically says that Daydan is a caravan guard through and through. And if you've seen one, you've seen them all. He doesn't make any effort to try and learn from Daydan. He doesn't make any effort to try and understand Daydan. And he's really more upset that Daydan is underestimating him. There's one part in here that just exemplifies Kvothe's attitude. He says, no one enjoys being talked down to. I have a particular aversion to it. That's so egotistical. That's so self-centered and so unwilling to accept that other people's experiences are also valid. Yeah. And then there's later on that little bit where he says, it's not your fault. You don't know what I can do. And that's the most patronizing response he could give. Like, so he responds to condescension with condescension. That doesn't work well. No, it really doesn't. And Foth doesn't do a whole lot of listening to Hespa or Daydan or any of them. The only one he expresses any curiosity towards is Tempe. And even then, that's more out of just, wow, I've never seen anyone like you before. I get that Foth doesn't like authority figures, but his absolute disrespect for anyone who doesn't think like him. Ugh. There's a lot of how not to do it here in terms of leadership. Kvothe doesn't express any empathy towards them. He doesn't really think about what does it mean for me to lead them beyond I need them to respect me or maybe fear me. He lights a fire that kind of turns into a fireball. Meant to be kind of a dramatic demonstration of his abilities. And he already knows that at least three of them come from a place where there is such superstition around magic that by all rights, this would terrify them. Seriously, what did he think would happen? Yeah, he is not very astute. And I think part of it is also he is so desperate to show confidence. And it's this false confidence, like it's born out of insecurity. He's so concerned that he has to prove himself with prowess that he doesn't think to actually listen to his compatriots to see what their specific skills and areas of expertise are. He's not trying to learn about who they are, what they can do for him. One of the things that I will always remember from one of my jobs at a print shop, there were two of us who had very similar skills in terms of our graphic design abilities. I would actually say that Ray was better at 
the illustration type stuff and I was more technical. But I also had a greater skill in all of the bindery stuff. And instead of being equitable, our boss was more concerned about us being equal, having equal responsibility for everything. Instead of playing to our strengths, I really wish that he had just played to our strengths. I would have loved to have been constantly working on the graphic design part of things, but I was actually better equipped to be the bindery person and it would have been okay with me to give most of the graphic design work to Ray and have me be spillover and have me be in charge of the things that I was actually good at. In this case, Quoth, leader, should have figured out what everybody's good at and assigned tasks to people who were good at that task. Daydan fancies himself as a person who is good at making fires. There you go. The other thing here is that if I look at the best leaders that I've worked with, typically the best ones are more interested in hearing what you need help with. Yes. Kvothe never asks, how can I help? No. He doesn't ask, what can I do to improve your situation? What is something that I need to be aware of? I would say that every single one of these group members is not working together. They are doing what is called parallel play, which is when a very young child, toddler, younger, plays next to another kid who is playing. Doesn't play with, doesn't share, none of that stuff. They just do their own tasks and they are next to one another. Yeah, there's a little of that. And yeah, I don't think Foth really understands what it means to be the leader. Or in a group. Right. He's not a great group project guy. Nope. <laughs> and he's more concerned with how people think of him than how he fits in with the group. Well, let's move on to the very last little bit of this section. Quoth, mm -hmm. again, not really truly interested in another person other than as a curiosity, is determined to make Tempe speak more than five words in a row at once, which is such a condescending way of saying, I'm going to try to befriend him and figure out what's going on with him. And then he says, Tempe reminded me of Sim, except Sim wouldn't shut up, which means that they're not alike. <laughs> they just look alike. He has such a superficial knowledge of people. And he still hasn't told Sim and Will that he's not dead. Right. He bothered to write a letter to Denna. Who is famously unreliable in her locations. He knows exactly where Will and Sim are. Right. He hasn't bothered trying to send a letter off to them to say, oh yeah, by the way, I'm not dead. I think they'd like to know. One would hope. He'd probably like to know if they weren't dead, except he doesn't seem to have any curiosity about them either. But that's about where we're left off. I think that's a good place to segue into our Phronemos of the week. It's your turn. That's right. Our Aristotelian model of practical wisdom really only had one serious contender. It's Martin. Right. Well, okay. We could have considered the Tinker. Or Stapes. Stapes had a very, very tiny presence. And also Stapes doesn't know what to get a poor little drunk both that will allow him to survive for a month in the woods. That's fair. Anyway, 
so yeah, I think the first thing is Martin understands that there's a difference between being the best at something and being a leader. Like if you look at leaders in groups, they're not the ones who are the best at everything. They're the ones that understand how to balance the interpersonal needs of the group with the various objectives that they're tasked with completing and then figuring out how to get people to work together to accomplish those tasks. And the skill sets of being an individual contributor and being a leader are very different. So Martin recognizes that. He also works as a balance point between all the various members of the team. You'll notice that in all of this, Martin is never complaining about any of the others. He never has anything negative to say. He just says, this is the way they are. I accept it. And once you get to know them, you'll be okay. Kvothe hasn't figured that part out yet. Even as he's eschewing the title of leader, he is functionally leading. And I think that's also something that's really important. Even when you aren't the, quote, group leader, the designated leader or manager, there are always things that you can do within your role to have an element of leadership. And I think that's really important to having any kind of fulfillment, finding those things that you're good at where you can help other people grow and then finding ways to share that. I think that's something super important. I think that's something really cool that Martin does here. I think he's probably going to be Phronemus of the week for a few, <laughs> a few sections here. That's very likely. One thing that I also would point out is that Martin isn't so tied to his ego. Exactly. He knows who he is. He has earned the respect of his colleagues, but he's not obsessed with maintaining it. He just knows that by being himself, the right people will get it. He doesn't worry about impressing them. Do a good job and that's all you got to do. I think that's pretty important there. So with that, let's move over to our interesting fact of the week. It's your turn. What'd you pick? All right. So it's something that you already know and that you kind of already knew before I got the information that I'm now going to share with everybody anyway. But backstory on why this is my interesting fact. We were visiting with your family out in Billings, Montana for the last week-ish. And your sister and her husband made a sushi night, like kind of a do your own sushi where they got us the fish and the rice and they made sure everything was all ready and they showed us how to roll it in a little sushi kit that they have. And then they had a tube of wasabi paste from their local grocery store. And oh my goodness, that was powerful, probably mustard powder and horseradish. I'm not sure there was any actual wasabi in it. There might possibly have been a little bit of powder in it to call it wasabi, but it was probably dyed green horseradish and mustard. Now, we had a discussion and I think almost everybody was agreeing that, yeah, we all know that wasabi for sushi, especially inexpensive wasabi for sushi, is almost never actually wasabi. But then there was kind of like, I wonder why. I kind of already knew, but it was interesting to delve deeper. So 
Here's the result of me delving a little bit deeper. So most commercially available wasabi is not wasabi. In fact, while some wasabi products might have a small percentage of actual wasabi root or powder in them, it is much more likely that any or all of the wasabi that you've ever eaten is just horseradish and mustard powder that has been dyed green. First of all, real wasabi has a much more floral, earthy, vegetal flavor that is more complex than its cousin horseradish. And while it does have a bite, the oh my god my sinuses are burning reaction isn't typical of real wasabi and might clue you in that your sushi accompaniment is more likely horseradish and mustard. Real wasabi also costs a whole ton more than the fake stuff. And there are a few good reasons. One, it is really difficult to grow. In fact, it is known for being the hardest plant to grow commercially in the world. Its natural habitat is near mountain streams in Japan because the conditions needed to grow it are just so specific. It needs running water. It needs shade, rocky soil, or gravel, a specific growing temperature, and humidity all year round, and little to no foot traffic from humans screwing it all up. And it takes a very long time to grow before it is ready to be harvested, on top of being quite susceptible to pests and disease. So there's not a lot of it. The other reason commercial wasabi products don't contain much, or sometimes any, wasabi is because it loses potency very, very, very fast. Generally speaking, if you were just to cut up wasabi and try to eat it, it wouldn't taste the way that you think that wasabi with the burning sensation would be because you have to grind it together. Like you have to make it into a little paste on what kind of looks like a zester, but with no holes in the back. It's just this kind of grater that turns it into a paste because you need to break down the cell walls and create a compound that makes it be more like wasabi that we're thinking of. So you're thinking of the paste. Within a half an hour of grating it, the distinctive sting and flavor are pretty much gone. The paste will have also lost its vibrancy. And since we humans are often described as eating with our eyes first, and that statement actually made me a little uncomfortable because it has Corinthian vibes and, um, mm -mm. the dyed green mustard and horseradish is just more appealing on a visual level for those of you who are not red, green, colorblind like me. Cool. I enjoy a good wasabi, or at least wasabi-esque. But yeah, that's a good one. So uh, let's move on to our thing of the week. It's my turn, and so I have Fire and Blood by George R. R. Martin. It's no secret that you and I are both massive Song of Ice and Fire fans. When we first got together, I ended up pestering you to listen to Game of Thrones on audiobook, weird Roy Detrisisms and all, and ever since, we've both been hooked. Yeah, you know, we also watched the TV series all the way through as it was airing with both book readers and non-book readers alike, and we had quite a good time with it. It's also no secret that I'm a huge fan of the Silmarillion and other such fantasy world histories, and Martin provides us with his own unique take on that in Fire and Blood, which is a history of House Targaryen stretching from its roots in the Valyrian Freehold all the way to the aftermath of the Dance of Dragons. 
So the thing that sets Fire and Blood apart from other such histories is its unique narrative conceit, namely that it's narrated from the perspective of Archmaester Gildane, yes, I pronounced that right, Archmaester Gildane of Old Town, constructing the story from a variety of unreliable primary sources. As such, it's intended to be read as an unreliable account of the events that transpired, which is exactly what actual histories really are. So currently, HBO is adapting portions of Fire and Blood into House of the Dragon, and part of the joy is seeing an adaptation of something that is clearly at least partly apocryphal, though which parts are ambiguous by design. The joy of this is that it means that any deviation from the stated text is something natural to the text itself, which is by design fluid and malleable to suit any storytelling purpose. I love this because that means that all the people who are crying canon can just stufu. Yeah, it's a great way of diffusing the critiques of narrative faithfulness, which are some of my least favorite critiques of any adapted work. Fans are the worst. Yeah. Now, I'm not going to pretend it's for everyone. The Silmarillion isn't for everyone either. But that doesn't mean I don't enjoy the hell out of both of them. And this is my segment, so there. <laughs> Cheeky. Yep. I actually did get that one on audiobook recently, and I need to make it through a lot of my other audiobooks, which is kind of hard when I'm so inundated with listening to us. But I'll get to it, probably. And if I don't get to it, we have the physical copy. I do actually really like having all that backstory available. I like the adaptation that they're doing so far also. And, you know, if you like getting into those nooks and crannies, into those, what was the author thinking when they made this? If you're one of those people that really likes the behind the scenes featurettes, I definitely agree with this recommendation. I'm glad. All right. So now it's time for us to go to seven words. So I had a number of choices here this week. So first we have how are things progressing with your lady? Then we've got, how much have they managed to take? I've led an interesting life, your grace. Then we have, safe roads are the bones of civilization. How long before we hit an inn? Yeah, I saw that one. We've got, pleasure doing business with you, young sir. Would you like to use my knife? Then I have, but let's not waste time on it tonight. None of these are really capturing. Then we've got, I know how to start a fire, and the one that I actually chose. It's got all sorts of little pockets. <laughs> oh, that one's perfect. I thought you might think so. All right. Well, for me, as I've said before, Will and I were traveling last weekend, and... I've probably said things similar to this before, probably chosen something similar to this before for our seven words. But after nearly three years of doing this, you know what? I don't remember everything, even though I have a handy dandy, not up to date version of nearly all of them on our Instagram. But that implies that I look at it. <laughs> anyway, my seven words. Thank you for being my traveling buddy. Aw. Well, I did enjoy having you as my traveling buddy, and I still do. 
Thank you. Well, with that, I'd like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thank you for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next time on Tales from the Waystone as we cover chapters 77 through 78 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of group dynamics. We would like to thank our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. And writing and project management courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us and have the means to do so, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod, where you can get things like bonus episodes about the Sandman and early access and just feel happy that you're helping us make this thing. And with that, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! Easing back into work mode from vacation mode. Yep. This isn't that much work, though. Nah. This is fun. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this one. You have? This is the start of something new. Exactly. <laughs>